Hi everyone, and welcome to episode 10 of DisasterCast, the podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. My name is Drew Ray. Today's episode is about putting a value on human life, an idea which we'll apply to the story of the Ford Pinto. First though, we have an interview on the topic of safety cases. Two of my colleagues, George Despoteau and Tim Kelly, recently published an article called First Contact with Safety Cases. It isn't so much academic research as a public article as a way of clarifying and dealing with some of the confusion and controversy surrounding the use of safety cases. George, could we start with a brief self-introduction? Hello, Drew. Thank you for having me here. I am a researcher in the High Integrity Systems Engineering Research Group and an academic member of the Department of Computer Science at the University of York. Uh, My background work uh, mainly focuses on uh, safety engineering and, in particular, safety and dependability cases. So I guess the first question is, what exactly is a safety case? Often developers have the onus to defend a position about the safety of their system, so in other words, to make a case about the safety of their system. This usually involves an explanation of how the available information about the system supports the claim that risks have been reduced to an acceptable level or that hazards related to a system, to the operation of a system, have been acceptably managed. A safety case is the means that allows us to capture all this information. The case includes all relevant reasoning and information of all stakeholders, which are then explicitly captured in some graphical or textual format and summarized in safety case reports. There are three fundamental elements in a safety case. The claim or claims that the developer or operator of a system will make or is prepared to defend about the system, the evidence that will ultimately support these claims, and the argument that will explain how the available evidence allows us to draw the conclusion conveyed by the initial claims. Why would we want to explicitly document a safety case? Is it just a regulatory thing or is the safety case useful in its own right? In addition to a number of standards in which development of a safety case is a requirement, the usefulness of the safety case has been appreciated in the industry and its concepts have been adopted by many organizations as good practice. The reason for this is that explicitly capturing all reasoning and information about the supported position, such as assumptions and evidence, facilitates assessing the fitness of the design to meet its safety objectives. A manufacturer will design a system aiming to achieve the required operational attributes, in other words, safety. However, what is intended is not often what achieved. Once the reasoning of the developers is explicitly documented as claim and argument supported by evidence, the gap between what was intended and what achieved becomes more apparent. Explicitly documenting the safety case will contribute towards the factual representation of the system revealing claims for which there may be lack of evidence. This may not necessarily imply that these claims have not been implemented, but that we are unaware about their achievement as they are not sufficiently supported by evidence. There can be three cases when a claim is not sufficiently supported. One is that there is not sufficient evidence to warrant the claim. A second is that although there is evidence, 
there is inadequate explanation, for example, a pre-problematic argument structure as to how this evidence supports the claim. And finally, the claim was phrased in a way that is unsupportable. For example, maybe a, a very ambitious claim with regard to the safety of the system. It seems that the big differences between safety cases and other approaches are the very explicit claims and the use of arguments to support those claims rather than just evidence. Can you say a bit more about why you think argument in particular is important? Argumentation is a core concept in safety cases. Claiming that the system will meet certain safety goals cannot be shown by raw, unexplained evidence, for example, test results. Explanation is needed how the evidence support one's claims. For example, an argument would explain how unit testing of a module contributes to our belief about the safety of the system of which this module is part. By and large, in engineering, we cannot draw conclusions with absolute certainty, but the conclusions that we make are only stated to a degree of confidence depending on the quality of evidence and the quality of the explanation supporting one's claims. Occasionally, for smaller parts of of a system, evidence can directly support the desired behavior. For example, a mathematical proof for for a module. But even then, we often make or imply arguments that what has been implemented corresponds to what has been proven. For example, consider the scheduler of a system. A mathematical proof can support a claim about its behavior. But then, this is true if what we have proven is what we have developed. Quality of both evidence and the argument is a composite attribute encapsulating issues such as the relevance and integrity of evidence, the structure of the argument, and the processes used to generate both the evidence and the argument itself. In some industries, having a safety case seems almost to imply the use of a graphical safety case notation such as GSN. Now, I know they're not the same thing, and you can have a safety case without GSN, or even without any sort of special notation. Could you explain, though, why you think GSN is a good idea? The reasoning behind the argument in a safety case can be complex. Free text often results in arguments that are difficult to follow, thus making the case unclear and incomprehensible. There is consensus among practitioners that supporting text by capturing parts of the safety case in a graphical format contributes towards the clarity of the safety case. The goal structuring notation or as known GSN, is a language containing all the necessary concepts to capture an argument in a structured format. GSN comes with a graphical notation and a method that can be used to facilitate the construction of an argument. Ultimately, as a safety engineer, and I think this is true of most safety engineers, having a well-documented argument is not my goal in life. I care about having a safe system and doing things that are going to make the system safer. Does a safety case actually do anything to improve safety? And if I've got a safety case, does that mean my system is safe? This is a very interesting question and a common misconception. Simply put, creating a safety case does not imply a safe system. Following the right principles to construct a safety case can help to reveal potential gaps in the reasoning and will contribute to make a system safer, that is, if the gaps are corrected. 
A safety case will help reveal these gaps in a number of ways. Firstly, by offering traceability between claims about the system, allowing to explore the steps from the evidence to the position that the system is safe. Secondly, by offering transparency to the assumptions made, the evidence used. And thirdly, by facilitating review, which becomes even more noticeable when the safety case is documented in one of the notations. A safety case should be thought of as another means towards safety and not as an objective. An argument should not be produced at the end of the system development, as it will eventually lead to an argument forced to fit the already developed system, thus mis misrepresenting reality. Safety case development should be seen as the means to evaluate the fitness of the system to support the claims made in the arguments during the development of that system. The safety case process will allow interaction between the safety and the design teams, constantly evaluating the measures in place to manage the risks of the system. Furthermore, the safety case will provide developers with an opportunity to identify, thus enabling early planning, the information that will need to be part of the safety case, such as appropriate evidence and safety or design analysis. Finally, the process of creating the safety case allows the identification of any counter-evidence and counter-arguments that may refute the claims of the safety case. Counter-evidence should not be ignored, as finalizing a safety case in presence of counter-evidence would imply that it is known that a number of the safety case claims may not be true, therefore undermining the entire safety case, and not just these claims. The design should be adapted to resolve these issues raised by the identified counter-evidence. What you've said speaks to the efficacy of safety cases, but it doesn't say anything about cost-effectiveness. Even if the safety case helps, it may not be worth the extra cost. Do we have much information about how much it costs to use safety cases? This is an important issue that has been putting many people off from using safety cases. The short answer is that all information points to the fact that the safety case development would not result in significant overheads. The additional cost would be that of the persons responsible with the actual writing of the safety case report and the argument in one of the notations. Although I have to say there is no specific indication of the man-hours this might require, there is consensus among all organizations which have written a safety case that this overhead is insignificant when compared to the entire cost of the safety life cycle and in some cases the cost of certification, although this is based on anecdotal evidence. What is often misunderstood as safety case overhead is the additional analysis, testing or design changes an organization will need to make because of weaknesses that have been exposed by writing the safety case. However, these weaknesses are not caused by the safety case itself and they would have been present, or more precisely, their existence would have been unknown in the system, even if they had not been revealed. It's worth pointing out to our listeners that there isn't an academic consensus on the use of safety cases. They're widely used and they seem to be increasing in use, but there are some respected academics and practitioners who question their value. One of the concerns is that explicitly arguing that a system is safe may in fact encourage confirmation bias. The Haddon Cave report into the Nimrod accident 
went so far as to suggest that they should be inverted and called risk cases, just to reduce confirmation bias. Could you say a little bit about what confirmation bias is, and how you think it relates to safety cases? Confirmation bias is a type of bias according to which people do not evaluate all available information, but tend to favor information that supports their beliefs. This is a natural and expectable cognitive bias that may result in introduction of weaknesses in the safety case, such as omitted information, assumptions, or big and unexplained jumps of reasoning and low quality of evidence. Nevertheless, confirmation bias is present in all human activities. The effects of confirmation bias can be present during the application of standards, for example, uh, construction of poor fault trees, and even development. For example, a design that does not reflect the requirements, but we select information that supports our belief that it does. To avoid confirmation bias, organizations usually set up internal assessment teams independent of the construction of the safety argument, and some standards require the safety case to be approved by an independent external safety assessor. Explicitly documenting the safety case using a graphical notation can offer transparency to the underlying reasoning about the safety of a system. This can help to expose any bias and its effect, as this would be more easily identified by inspecting the structure of the argument graph, and therefore easier to correct. Often people do wonder why we do not assign the safety case construction to a third independent party instead of the system developer in order to avoid this cognitive bias. Developers are a very, very valuable asset to the safety case. They are the stakeholders with the most expertise of the system and the ones who are able to produce and interpret crucial pieces of evidence. They have the inside information, if you will. An analogy would be to consider the differences between black box and white box testing. A good safety case construction process, guided by relevant standards, and training of the people who construct the safety case should provide an organization the means to use the expertise of the designers whilst mitigating the effect of bias. Thank you very much, George. Is there anything you'd like to say in conclusion? I would like to add a disclaimer um, that I am expressing personal opinion based on my experiences and that this should not constitute advice based on which to make any safety-related decisions. If any of the listeners is interested in using safety cases, I would advise going over the available literature and or contracting advice from someone speaking in their professional capacity. For more information about safety cases, you can visit the goalstructuringnotation.info website where you can find the GSN standard along with guidance, and the dependable sos.org website where you can mainly find articles on safety cases for systems of systems. How much is a human life worth? If it's your own life, or the life of a loved one, it's probably worth as much as you're able to pay. If it's the life of a specific named individual, probably it's worth somewhere between 10 and 30 years at Her Majesty's pleasure. But what if it's not a specific individual, but a hypothetical person sometime in the future? How much are you 
willing to pay to keep that person alive? This is an important question for managing safety in any society, and even within any specific project. Let's get the obvious out of the way. We've all heard people say that no amount of money is worth a human life, or that you can't place a value on human life. Not only is this demonstrably incorrect, it actually has the effect of making things less safe. Extreme risk aversion, which is what those sayings amount to, doesn't typically result in less risk. It results in uninformed risk trade-offs, with an overall increase in net risk. Imagine your friend is dying of cancer, and there is a new treatment that costs a million pounds. The treatment isn't well established, and it has a 10% success rate. So what, you say? You can't put a price on my friend's head and deny them the treatment. However, putting a price on your friend's life is exactly what we need to do in order to spend the million pounds wisely. Even if that particular million pounds goes towards a new car park for the hospital, overall, having a rational process for deciding when to spend or not spend money will result in more money being spent on those treatments, which do the greatest good. As it happens, we are seldom making stark decisions about the value of whole lives. If a system or a factory is probably going to kill one or more people, that's a level of risk well above the threshold for doing something about it. When we make value-of-life decisions, we're typically trading in what we call statistical lives, small increases or decreases in the chance of dying. Roughly speaking, the odds of you dying tomorrow are about 1 in 100,000. This makes all sorts of assumptions about your age, fitness, and propensity for extreme sports, but let's run with it as an example. How much would you pay me to guarantee that you live through the day? If you say less than £10, you're valuing your life at less than a million pounds. Conversely, how much would I have to pay you to double your risk to 1 in 50,000? If you say more than £10, you're valuing your life at over a million pounds. This example illustrates a couple of different points. Firstly, we're dealing with tiny numbers. If you were probably going to die, or if I put you into a situation where you were probably going to die, you might give me a very different answer. Secondly, most people give inconsistent answers to the two questions. They value their life at less than a million pounds one minute, and more than a million pounds the next. This is a side effect of the fact that there is no true market in statistical life, so any monetary value we assign is somewhat arbitrary. We could just as well convert everything into micromorts or apples. We happen to use money for convenient comparisons, because so many ways of reducing risk involve spending money. So let's get back to the question. How much is a human life worth? We have a number of different ways of finding the answer. The first is the one we just used. We ask people lots of questions about their willingness to trade money for risk. That method is called contingent valuation. It's used in economics for a range of situations where non-market goods need to be given a price, 
and it's controversial for exactly that reason. Without a market, there is no real price, just what people think they would pay, or claim they would pay. An alternative is revealed preference. This is where people make actual financial decisions related to safety risk. These can range from purchasing sports safety equipment or taking the safety options on cars, to demanding higher wages to work in higher risk occupations. Revealed preference is also a bit tricky, because we never know exactly why people make the decisions they do. Maybe they bought the sports package because of the electronic stability control, or maybe they just wanted racing stripes and spoilers. Maybe they chose to be a deep pit miner because of the salary, or maybe they were following in their father's footsteps. Governments reveal preferences through their decisions too. Many safety policy decisions have financial implications, so they give hints as to how much the government think a life is worth. Unfortunately, democracies are even more inconsistent than individuals when it comes to risk preferences. I recommend the paper 500 Life-Saving Interventions and Their Cost-Effectiveness for some fun, if not entirely accurate, comparisons. For better or worse, revealed preferences and policy preferences are inconsistent across society, but are reasonably stable within particular application domains. We might spend a thousand times as much saving someone from radiation death than from carbon monoxide poisoning, but our thresholds are fairly consistent within the nuclear power industry, or within the car industry. Overall, as a society, we don't spend money wisely when it comes to controlling risk, but at least engineers and managers can make rational safety decisions using the value of statistical life. The actual number, by the way? Well, as you might guess, it varies from industry to industry, country to country, and even as economic times get better or worse, but it's typically somewhere between £1 million and £5 million. As a final point... I should mention that system safety is not actually about saving lives. Not even the best safety engineer can prevent someone from dying. We can just avoid causing their death to be earlier than it otherwise would be. For engineering purposes, we usually consider not killing a 20-year-old supermodel to be an equal achievement to not killing a 70-year-old cancer patient. Not everyone has that luxury. In medicine, for example the basic concept of statistical lives needs to be translated into quality-adjusted life years, considering not just extending life, but making it better as well. The example I used about a new cancer treatment is a real dilemma medical professionals face, trading off the perfect treatment for each individual against the social aim of a reasonable standard of treatment for everyone. Right off the bat, it may seem strange to talk about the Ford Pinto as a disaster. One of the weird features of human risk perception is that we recognise one accident killing 100 people as more serious than 100 accidents each killing one person. Automobiles are a really special case because even the best designed model car will be involved in hundreds of fatal accidents. Small increases and decreases in that number, though really deserve as much attention as tank farm explosions. The Ford Pinto was part of a new generation 
of subcompact automobiles designed and manufactured in the United States. Subcompacts are smaller than family cars and typically involve very tight trade-offs between cost and other selling points. Several design decisions were made for the Pinto that would later prove controversial. The petrol tank was located behind the rear axle rather than above the axle. This was contrary to normal design practice at the time and left the tank very exposed in the event of rear-end collisions. Compounding this hazard, the rear of the car lacked reinforcement. Many cars have both horizontal and longitudinal metal supports, known as hat sections. These absorb energy as they deform during a collision. Also, there were only 9 inches between the petrol tank and the rear of the car, limiting the amount of energy that could be absorbed by the body crumpling. Beyond this basic lack of protection, there were features that could make an accident actually worse, such as unnecessary protruding bolts, described by some as gas tank can openers. It's surprisingly difficult, though, to work out if the Ford Pinto was actually a dangerous car. Generally speaking, there is no particular evidence that the Pinto was more or less dangerous than other subcompact cars of the time. Any case against the Pinto needs to be made on the particular design problem. The specific hazard that was the subject of legal proceedings was a petrol tank fire caused by rear-end collision. Only about 4% of all auto fatalities at the time died in fires, and only 15% of these fires were caused by rear-end collisions. The Ford Pinto was certainly not great at protecting against this hazard. It made up 2% of the market, but it caused 4% of the rear-end fire deaths. On the other hand, subcompact cars were typically twice as dangerous as other cars anyway. Even compared to the other subcompact cars, though, the Pinto did not perform well. Its rate of rear-end fires was worse than most, but not all, of its competitors. Worse doesn't necessarily mean horrible, though. To put things into perspective, between 1971 and 1977, there were officially 27 deaths related to Ford Pinto rear-end fires. Of these, it is likely that many would have died from the collision, even if there wasn't a fire. Of those remaining, not all of the fires could have been prevented, even with a better design. So in summary, we have a subcompact car that's roughly as dangerous as its competitors. It does, however, have a specific and distinctive vulnerability that may or may not have led to extra people dying. What propelled the Ford Pinto into safety history was not the vulnerability itself, but the decision process leading to the Ford Pinto's entry onto the consumer market. There are a number of factual questions surrounding the decision-making by Ford that we will never truly know the answer to. What I present here is essentially the story given by the plaintiffs in a case Grimshaw and the Ford Motor Company decided in February 1978. Richard Grimshaw was a passenger, badly injured by burns in a Ford Pinto rear-end collision, which also killed the other plaintiff, Lily Gray. The plaintiffs won the case, suggesting that the jury at least 
preferred their explanation of events. The initial decision to relocate the fuel tank was made as a design trade-off. In the hatchback version of the car, placing the fuel tank on top of the rear axle would have resulted in a tiny boot space. This was not necessarily a functionality versus safety trade-off. There are safety risks and safety benefits to any location for the fuel tank. The limited protection, though, given to the fuel tank was almost certainly made on the basis of cost. Ford became aware that there was a problem from two sources. Firstly, new fuel tank safety regulations were being discussed, alerting Ford to the problems with their approach. Secondly, Ford's own testing and internal design reviews indicated concerns. Ford decided not to make safety improvements. Evidence was submitted to the trial that improving the rear bumper, adding hat sections, and removing the can opener bolts would have cost around $9.85 per car. Ford, according to the plaintiffs, made this decision as a cost-benefit trade-off. Some insight into how this decision might have been made is given by a document that was not actually admitted as evidence in the Grimshaw trial. This document was a submission by Ford to the national regulator arguing against an $11 safety device. This device would reduce automobile fires, but not the particular ones of concern for the Pinto. Ford discussed the costs and benefits of mandating the device, and suggested that the total safety benefit was less than the cost. This conclusion was reached by valuing each life saved at the low figure of $200,000. Given the state of safety science in the 1970s, the $200,000 figure is wrong, but it isn't silly. Even allowing for inflation, it vastly underestimates how much people actually value their own lives, but they didn't know that at the time. Probably, they used that figure because the regulator themselves had used it in a similar analysis. What drew most controversy, though, was the simple idea that Ford had made a cost-benefit trade-off. It sounded to the public, amplified by a number of media voices, as if Ford was putting corporate profit ahead of human life. In retrospect, the Ford Pinto became a legend for totally the wrong reasons. There is nothing immoral with cost-benefit trade-offs. Arguably, the immoral thing would be to not make these trade-offs. Every engineering enterprise involves safety risk. We accept a cost in human lifespan in return for some benefit. The rational and moral thing to do is to limit that cost as much as possible. Spending money on safety without first working out how to spend that money effectively is equivalent to killing people needlessly. Where Ford went wrong was not in measuring the cost of safety improvements. They made an engineering mistake in not anticipating the hazard and designing against it, and they made a judgment error in placing insufficient value on human life, and indeed insufficient value on their own reputation. They also, as it turns out, made a legal error in assuming that crashworthiness would not be contested in court. They assumed that if ever there was an accident, they could always blame the driver or the third party who caused the accident. Unfortunately for Ford, Richard Grimshaw and Lily Gray weren't in an accident 
that was someone else's fault. They didn't cause the accident themselves either. Their Ford Pinto stalled in the middle of the freeway, probably as a result of a faulty design of carburetor. That's it for this episode of DisasterCast. Thank you to everyone who filled out the listener survey. It's still available via the disastercast.co.uk website, where you can find episode transcripts and resources relevant to each episode. So far, the main pattern of responses has been asking for less of the theme music and more recent research. I'll get right on to both of those. The theme, A Disaster Anthem, is still by Eden Prayer, but you're hearing less of it. DisasterCast is supported by prize money from I'm a Scientist, Get Me Out of Here.